From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Washington Watch. Coming up on this Thursday edition, it is official. Associate Justice Stephen Breyer is retiring from the Supreme Court. It is clear that the president's focus is going to be, as you heard him say, on the process of selecting a nominee, someone who will be qualified, uh, who, as I think you heard him say, who will uh, be worthy uh, of the decency and excellency of, uh, of Justice Breyer's legacy. That was White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki earlier this afternoon. Question is, will President Biden keep his campaign pledge to nominate a black female, the first to serve on the nation's highest court? We'll get the latest on the announcement and what it sets in motion from Washington Times White House reporter Jeff Mordock. And on the international front, how will the U.S. respond to Russia? Now we'll continue to press forward and prepare. It remains up to Russia to decide how to respond. We're ready either way. That was Secretary of State Anthony Blinking speaking of the Biden administration's diplomatic efforts to bring a resolution to the Russian-Ukraine crisis. Mississippi Senator Roger Wicker, a member of the Senate Armed Services Committee, was recently in Ukraine, and he joins us in just a little bit. Is the federal government considering the creation of a database to keep information on every federal employee, volunteer, intern, contractor, or consultant who request a religious exemption from the government's vaccine mandate. Would this be a bad idea or a really bad idea? I'll talk with Professor Bob Destro, professor of law and religion at Catholic University of America's Columbus School of Law, later on this edition of Washington Watch. And are the big tech giants who are silencing conservatives in this country getting rich helping China win the artificial intelligence war? Peter Schweitzer, author of Red Handed, says... Yes, and he joins us later with the evidence. Remember our friends, the Kleins in Oregon? They had a bakery that was one of the first to be targeted by LGBT activists trying to force them to bake a same-sex wedding cake. They have been in a decade-long legal battle for justice with the help of First Liberty Institute. That justice may be on the way. We'll talk with Stephanie Taub, who is the senior counsel at First Liberty and has been representing them. Today is, as uh, today, rather, as anti-Semitism is on the rise around the globe, many stop to remember the horrors of the Holocaust and once again vow never again. Susan Michael, director of the International Christian Embassy Jerusalem, is here on the Holocaust Remembrance Day. A lot to cover today. If you miss anything, you can find it all later at TonyPerkins.com. Our verse today, coming from our Stand on the Word two-year Bible reading plan, is Job 19.25. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. In his darkest hour, Job held on to this eternal truth, that our Redeemer lives. Paul did as well. He said over in Romans chapter 8, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. That is something we can hold on to. If you'd like to be a part of our Bible reading plan, go to frc.org slash Bible. Well, many court watchers are holding their collective breaths to hear who President Biden will nominate to replace retiring Justice Stephen Breyer. 
senior most liberal on the U.S. Supreme Court bench. While whoever Biden nominates will uh, not tip the current 6-3 conservative ideological balance, the person will be continuing the liberal legacy of the court, perhaps even outdoing Breyer, Justice Sotomayor, and Kagan in terms of wokeness. Joining me now with the latest on the, this story is Jeff Murdoch. He's a White House reporter for The Washington Times. Jeff, welcome to Washington Watch. Thanks for having me, Tony. I appreciate it. All right. So what do we know in terms of when this nomination will take place? Uh, President Biden said today he expects to have a nomination in place, a nominee in place by the end of February. He said it'll be a rigorous process and he's going to consult uh, lawmakers of both parties, as well as legal scholars on who his pick should be. So did uh, the president uh, renew his campaign promise to nominate a black female to Breyer's seat? Yes, he did. That was a campaign promise he made that the first opportunity he would nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court. There's never been a black woman on the Supreme Court, so it's a historic nomination. It's also a chance for a reset for the president. He's had a string of uh, a string of losses legislatively, politically, and this will be a chance to give him a much needed victory. Any thoughts as to who the leading contender might be? Uh, there are two uh, candidates, Contenje Brown-Jackson, who is a uh, district court judge here in D.C., a circuit court judge, I should say, here in D.C., and Leandra Kruger, who is a, a California Supreme Court justice. Uh, there are a couple of other candidates, Michelle Childs, who's being favored by uh, Representative Claiborne. Uh, she's from South Carolina, but it sounds like it's going to be between Brown-Jackson and Kruger. This uh, discussion about the vice president being tapped, is that just uh, inside political rumor that is circulating? It doesn't make any sense for the president to appoint Vice President Harris, because if he if she gets approved, if she gets confirmed on the court, then the Democrats would lose their ability to break deadlocks by having the vice president come in and vote. So if the president put up a successor to Vice President Harris, then the Republicans decided that they are going to block that successor. There would be nobody to come in and break the tie, and then we would not have a vice president, which could be problematic for this administration. It would be both embarrassing as well as just create a um, create some difficulty in terms of getting things done. Yeah, and I was even trying to verify today. I couldn't get an answer from uh, those in the Senate as to whether or not uh, the vice president could actually vote on her nomination whether or not she would have to recuse herself, which then could lead to a 50-50 uh, deadlock in the Senate. I've asked that question, too. I've also not been able to get an answer. Legal scholars seem split. We've never had a sitting vice president nominated to the Supreme Court. So we just, it, it, it's uncharted territory. One final question for you, Jeff. This, does this have any liability for Democrats in the midterm election? I mean, there's a, there's a lot of concern. You know, last four uh, election cycles, we've had vacancies on the court. This one doesn't shift the ideolog ideological makeup. But if the president really picks someone to the left, could this be a liability for Democrats in some of these uh, swing states? I think it cuts both ways. I think it's something that's going to energize the Democratic base ahead of the midterms, but it's also going to mobilize Republicans. Uh, I think both sides are going to see this, and it's going to 
see the ideology of the candidate that the president's going to put forward. It's going to motivate both sides to be active and especially, especially with the midterms right, right down the road. All right, Jeff Mordock, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your insights. All right, shifting gears to uh, international concerns. Last night, the U.S. Ambassador to Russia, John Sullivan, delivered the Biden administration's written response to concerns the Kremlin had expressed during the ongoing standoff between Russia and Ukraine. According to news reports, the, quote, written document was intended to address concerns Moscow has publicly released and to outline areas where the U.S. has said it sees potential progress for Russia or with Russia, arms control, transparency and stability, the top U.S. diplomat told reporters at the State Department, end quote. But apparently the Kremlin was not impressed by the White House response. Today, the Russian foreign minister was quoted as saying there is no positive reaction on the main issue in this American document. The main issue is over our clear position on the inadmissibility of further expansion of NATO to the east and the deployment of strike weapons that could threaten the territory of the Russian Federation. Joining me now with the latest on this ongoing crisis is Senator Roger Wicker of Mississippi. He is a member of the Senate Armed Services Committee and was recently in Ukraine meeting with uh, uh, Ukrainian officials. Senator, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much, Tony. Glad to be back on. So uh, I know you um, took a trip with, uh, it was a bipartisan trip with other senators over to Ukraine. You met with President Zelensky. Uh, You've been a part of uh, briefing the Biden administration. Is the Biden administration uh, responding appropriately to the situation? Uh, Well, they're they're responding better than the Obama administration did. Uh, I I will have to say I would I would like to have seen a a little more of of a, a muscular response. But but also this comes in the context of everything else that's happening. You know, when when Leon Panetta, who served in the Democratic Obama administration, says the world sees weakness coming from this administration over Afghanistan, over our defense policy, uh, I think it's pretty telling that someone like uh, that's a that's a, a dedicated Democrat would say the world sees weakness. And I think that. That is the sort of thing that gives Putin ideas about returning to what Ronald Reagan called the evil empire. And that's a return of, of uh, something like the USSR, where Russia controls its neighbors, where they're not free. They don't have the ability to have a market uh, economy, and they, they don't have the ability to elect their own leaders. So um, to the extent that we are saying we're willing to send weapons over there. Uh, I applaud that, and I want to be bipartisan about it. And I uh, I hope that uh, some of the stronger members uh, on the Democratic side of the Armed Services Committee um, can continue uh, um, to, to give the president some, uh, some backbone and spine on this issue. Uh, Senator Wicker, you have said that the time for diplomacy alone has ended. Uh, that uh, we're now at a point where a more aggressive stance is needed. Is that the sending of weapons to uh, Ukraine? Is that what you're suggesting? Or is there is there more the U.S. can do? Uh, well, here's what I don't ever believe in doing. I, I believe in following the, the Eisenhower uh, doctrine, which every president, Democrat and Republican, has followed. We don't rule anything out. Um, no president has ever done that until until this one. 
So I'd leave all options on the table, but but uh, clearly the Ukrainians and the Europeans are capable of defending themselves if we'll supply them uh, with uh, with the the, the proper uh, armaments. But I, I would not rule out. Um, I, I, I just wouldn't take anything off the table because it's a bad uh, it's a bad option. I, the, the, I, I agree. This, from from having talked to um, the defense minister over there in Kiev, the foreign minister, and the president of the country, the freely elected president, who got seventy five percent in the last election, the Ukrainians have the resolve never to go under the uh, Russian thumb again. They remember how it was not to be free. Right. And they're listening also to what to what Putin's saying to the neighbors. Putin also said, not only do, do we not want Ukraine ever, ever to be a member of NATO, even if they freely choose to do that, we want Bulgaria and Romania to leave NATO and, um, and, and, uh, and come back into sort of a non-aligned status. There's no way we're going to agree to that sort of thing. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right, Senator Wicker, having worked with some of those Eastern Bloc countries, previously Eastern Bloc countries, the uh, the understanding and taste of communism still exist, and those that uh, tasted don't want to go back. You're absolutely right. We just need to stand with them and uh, and help them. Senator Roger Wicker, always great to talk with you. Thanks so much for stopping by today. You bet. Talk All to right, you soon. Have a great day. Bye-bye. All right. Coming up next, we'll be talking with Professor... Bob Destro about a proposal to create a database to track those who request religious exemptions to the president's vaccine mandate. That's coming up next here on Washington Watch. Don't go away. Are you struggling to spend consistent time in God's word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading with an intentional focus of diving deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues. By studying the Bible, we can see the grandeur of God unfold throughout the past. The Stand on the Word reading plan takes you through daily scripture in an engaging manner to help you stay grounded in God's truth. All wisdom comes from God and he has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you every Sunday with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org Bible. With the current division and confusion of our culture, it is so important for Christians to root ourselves in the truth of God's word so that we are prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. For this purpose, Family Research Council launched the Center for Biblical Worldview. The Center applies the Bible and the historical teachings of the Church to current issues. This helps Christians understand and live by a biblical worldview, know why Scripture must be authoritative, and equips believers to advance and defend the faith in workplaces, schools, communities, and the public square. The experts at the center address and provide resources on issues like religious liberty, abortion, voting, marriage, and sexuality. To access free resources like the Biblical Worldview series, go to frc.org worldview. To get highlights of the latest work of the Worldview Fellows, including blogs, 
interviews, and publications, sign up at frc.org slash subscriptions. At Family Research Council, it is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, we've decided to be proactive to make sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. That is why we've created a tech subscription platform. If we get canceled, you can stay informed and still find updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts, and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and you will get special alerts on the biggest stories of the day. You can stay informed with just a simple text. We want you to be able to stay connected with like-minded community and to always have access to our content. Stay connected and informed. Just text STAND to 67742. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. Good to have you with us. The website, TonyPerkins.com. All right, a number of nations backing away from the uh, government overreach as it comes to, uh, as it pertains to the uh, coronavirus. In fact, Denmark Prime Minister announcing uh, today that, or actually yesterday, that uh, Denmark is throwing out most of the COVID-19 pandemic restrictions that it has put in place, even Finland is going to begin easing its restrictions in mid-February. That means the mask mandates are gone, uh, some of the vaccine mandates. While, and we've, we've been talking about this before, Britain doing the same thing. But the United States, it looks like we're doubling down. Uh, the administration continues to, continues to fight for its mandates. But now uh, there's a suggestion or evidence to suggest that the federal government is considering the creation of a database to keep information on every federal employee, volunteer, intern, contractor, or consultant who requests a religious exemption from the government's vaccine mandate. This be a bad idea or a really bad idea. Joining us now to discuss this is someone well-equipped to answer this question, Catholic University professor of law and former commissioner on the United States Commission on Civil Rights, Bob Destro. Bob, welcome back to the program. Well, thanks, Tony, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So what do we know about this and and the government's uh, creation of this registry to track and uh, or at least keep on file everyone who's requested a religious exemption to their mandate? Well, we don't know much about it. It appeared in in the, uh, we call the Federal Register, which is the official announcement of of proposed rulemaking uh, for the federal government. And and so all we know is that they're going to do this. We have no idea where they get the authority. We have no idea where they get the data. Uh, We have no idea what they're gonna use it for. Uh, And so to answer your question in the intro, is it a a bad idea or a really bad idea? I, I would say it's a horrific idea. I mean, what would they do with this? Track people to see if they go to church, to see if their religious exemption is legitimate? Uh, is it a form of intimidation? I mean, we, we've long protected our privacy in this country. And it seems like, especially in this pandemic, we've accelerated the, the overreach of the government. Well, I think we've accelerated the overreach of the government uh, for a long time. 
I mean, if we go back to uh, to even to 9-11, uh, we pretty much acquiesced in in uh, in saying that they have a right to pat us down at the airport. You know, yeah. a, a lot of people would argue about that, but you know, but but it's worth looking at uh, with respect to this question: Are they, you know, what are they using? Why do they need the information other than to create a list of people who oppose their mandate? Right. It, and and to, to go back to your example of 9/11, I was a vocal opponent of the private of the uh, Patriot Act, uh, and remain have remained so even when it was all embraced by Republicans. Because if there's coming a day when you're not going to have a George W. Bush in the White House and a fairly conservative uh, administration, you're going to have one that's going to use this against us. And voila, what did we find? Uh, that's exactly what they did against uh, pr- President Trump as a candidate. They used the Patriot Act and the, the authority given to them. You always have to look at this. I don't, I'm not a pessimist. I'm a realist. You have to look at all of these policies in, how they, in, in the worst way that they can be used. Well, there's no question. And, and the idea that there is actually a right to privacy anymore. And that's going to be the, the big human rights issue to come. I mean, why are they collecting all this data? Who is collecting the data? What are they collecting it about? And it's not just the government uh, that's collecting it. Google and Facebook, I mean, you know, basically they have, uh, they know more about you than you know about yourself. And and the use of that data uh, is just, that's just one of many questions. But why the D.C. Uh, government is doing it completely eludes me. And, and everybody needs to complain about it, write in and, and make comments about it. And then as soon as it goes into effect, they need to be sued. So let me ask you this question, Bob, because a lot of these government databases, you know, like IRS is supposed to, you know, that's private information, although it's been hacked into or it's been released for political purposes. But a lot of the information that the government collects is open to researchers and others. I mean, what do we know about the protections that we would have over this information that they collect? We don't know much about it at all. Uh, and it's getting worse. I mean, the uh, uh, Maxine Waters has asked for the, uh, the credit scoring agencies uh, to be taken over by the federal government, which would give everybody, access, which would give the government access to all of our credit information. They, uh, the IRS wants a report of every transaction of over $600. I mean, basically what we're doing is we're, we're collecting all these databases and then we can use it, we can match it with some kind of, a, whether it's a vaccine passport or even a microchip like they're going to try and use in Switzerland and Sweden to track us constantly. That's what the Chinese do. I was, I was fixing to say this sounds very much like communist China. Well, actually, Communist China got the idea from us, and most of the Communist Party face recognition software came from the United States. Companies like Honeywell and other American companies uh, basically helped the Chinese put it together. Uh, Interesting you mentioned that. That's my next topic in the next segment, talking about how uh, the uh, megatech firms that are silencing conservatives here in this country have been getting rich off the uh, the Chinese by helping them in their artificial intelligence efforts. Yeah, and, and, you know, more to the point that you made before, 
Uh, the Chinese have just announced that anybody who criticizes China during the Olympics is in trouble. You know, guess what? We have that same problem here. And what we have now is American capitalism with Chinese characteristics. Well, I don't think I can get in any more trouble with China. I've already been sanctioned by China, so I don't know what's what's next. Uh, Bob Destro, always great to talk with you. Thanks so much. We're going to keep an eye on this, and I'm also going to track it down to make sure we can put this out for people to comment on this uh, rulemaking process. Very good. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Always great to see you. Take care. Bob Destro, Catholic University law professor, but also was in the uh, Trump administration at the Department of State. All right, coming up next, Peter Schweitzer, author of Red Handed, How American Elites Get Rich Helping China Win. He's here to share more about his book. You don't want to miss this interview. We're coming back right after the break with more Washington Watch. Don't go away. What is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs. Why should we care about this freedom? At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe that it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a tragic reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to increase globally. In Scripture, God calls Christians to pray and care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To access Family Research Council's latest resources and to learn more about religious freedom and what you can do to help the persecuted, go to frc.org slash religious liberty. Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets, and other social media posts, and our latest blogs, updates, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. This is Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins. Good to have you with us. Website, TonyPerkins.com. It's no secret that big tech and Silicon Valley are not friendly to the conservative cause. But are the ambitions of the Silicon Valley elites also helping one of America's biggest rivals on the world stage and one of our biggest enemies? Well, that's the question my next guest answers in his new book, Red-Handed, How American Elites Get Rich, Helping China Win. The author, Peter Schweitzer, joins me now. Peter, welcome to Washington Watch. Great to be with you, Tony. Thanks for having me. 
So let me just start with this. What is the ultimate goal of the Chinese Communist Party's collaboration with Silicon Valley? Well, they're quite explicit about it. They have a strategy called elite capture. And basically what it is, Tony, is their goal, and they've stated this openly, is to surpass the United States and to become the supreme power uh, on the planet. Uh, and rather than going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the United States and our powerful economic system, they simply want to co-opt elites. So they call it elite capture. And their theory is if they can neuter our elites, they can effectively win this competition uh, without having going to having to go head to head with the United States. Uh, President Xi has said that science and technology is a national weapon. Is, is Silicon Valley helping China achieve that, uh, that goal? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are numerous examples I cite in the book where Silicon Valley titans um, suck up to Xi in all kinds of ways, but in a very real material sense, uh, we know that Microsoft, we know that Google are doing joint research projects where they are putting in capital, they are putting in intellectual capital into China, and those research projects are with institutions linked to the Chinese military. Uh, and they are doing research on artificial intelligence, which President Xi has said is the technology that will give them the, quote, commanding heights in their competition with the United States. There are numerous other examples as well. Bill Gates, for example, personally has invested in Chinese companies, a company BYD, for example, which is involved in developing missile technology for China. Uh, so there is a very serious problem that these tech executives don't have an allegiance to the United States that we would expect and don't seem to be particularly concerned that they are subsidizing and helping the Chinese military. I mean, Peter, there's no secret that the Chinese military, there's no firewall between them and the private sector tech companies in China. They have access to everything. That's right. In fact, they are required by law. Uh, there's legislation that calls for civilian military fusion. So if you are a civilian company in China, you're required by law to turn over military-related applications. And the problem is, is that Silicon Valley executives don't seem to be particularly concerned about this. In fact, Microsoft as a company actually takes interns from the Chinese People's Liberation Army. I mean, it's that blatant. Um, and they don't seem to be particularly concerned that this is going on. So, uh, Peter, before I, I, I go further with uh, some more questions, where can folks get a copy of uh, your book, Red Handed? Uh, you can find it on any online site. It's number one on Barnes & Noble and on Amazon, and you can find it in bookstores around the country. Okay, so, Peter, I, this is probably a question that's on the minds of many people. What's the motivation here? Is this all about money? Uh, it's a great question. A part of it's money, but when you consider a guy like Bill Gates, who's worth $100 billion, does he really need more money? I think there's something else at work here, Tony. I, I actually quote in the chapter on Silicon Valley a professor from MIT in the 1970s named Professor Wiesenbaum, and he describes the fact that computer programmers can develop a kind of godlike complex because they get to construct with coding the universe in which things behave uh, in this platform. So you think about Facebook, uh, Mark Zuckerberg and his programmers are the ultimate arbitrators. What you find, Tony, is that a lot of these executives in Silicon Valley and on Wall Street have an, a, an admiration for the dictatorial regime in China. They'll use phrases like, you know, the Chinese government's so much more efficient than the United States. They make decisions so much more quickly. Well, of course, autocratic governments have that advantage. So it's about more than just money. I think there is actually an attraction 
not so much maybe to the ideology, but to the efficiencies of an autocratic government, plus the fact that, of course, uh, the Chinese government uh, gives all kinds of awards and accolades to these uh, business executives. But, but clearly they have to know that they're jeopardizing that national security. I mean, you had this uh, joint project between Google and Facebook uh, with this underwater cable uh, going yeah. to Hong Kong with the Chinese with the Chinese firm connected to the Chinese government. Uh, the U.S. Federal Trade Commission blocked that last year or in 2020. Um, I mean, th- they got to see this. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the cable's a perfect example. I mean, Facebook and Google decide to finance this cable that's going to connect Hong Kong with San Francisco. And as you point out, they hire a military contractor in China to do that construction. And it's only because the FBI and the Justice Department says that this would create an unprecedented opportunity for Chinese espionage that the project is halted. Now, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that the uh, people at Facebook and at Google know a lot more about technology than the Department of Justice. So if the Department of Justice knows that this has created an unprecedented opportunity for espionage, you can bet that Google and Facebook knew that from the beginning, but I think honestly they just didn't care because they're blinded by their ambitions as it relates to China. Amazing, very dangerous. Peter, great to have you on the program. We're gonna talk more about this because I think it is fascinating and it's, it's something the American people need to know. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, God bless, Tony. Peter Schweitzer, I would encourage you to get a copy of the book. I mean. And he's been writing about China for a while, so he he understands. Going back to the Clinton administration and their connection with China, he's been warning people for a long time, but he's digging in and getting the evidence. We're going to talk more about that. All right, don't go away. We're going to come back with more on the other side of the break, more Washington Watch coming up as we uh, still got a lot to cover, so don't go anywhere. Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets, and other social media posts, and our latest blogs, updates, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. What is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs. Why should we care about this freedom? At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe that it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a tragic reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to increase globally. In Scripture, God calls Christians to pray and care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. 
Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To access Family Research Council's latest resources and to learn more about religious freedom and what you can do to help the persecuted, go to frc.org slash religious liberty. Attention university students. Are you looking for an internship that will help you grow as a Christian leader and allow you to positively influence the culture? Then Family Research Council's internship program is for you. FRC's life-changing 12- to 15-week internship program will prepare and equip you for the next step in your professional journey. You'll enjoy a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training. All of these offerings were created to aid you in your personal and professional development. As an intern, you will have the opportunity to work side-by-side with our experts in policy, communications, event planning, and more. The real-world experience you gain will prepare you to pursue a career of influence and make a difference wherever God calls you. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org internships to apply. You are listening to Washington Watch, and you're watching Washington Watch if you're watching on television. Find out where you can watch us. You can go to TonyPerkins.com and look at the listing of stations. So we've got television stations, uh, TV stations across the, uh, the country, and uh, now on a growing platform of television stations. And it's a great opportunity to invite your friends to tune in and watch every evening, 5 p.m. Eastern time, to Washington Watch. All right, what is the price Americans have to pay to practice their Christian faith in the workplace? Well, the state of Oregon puts the price tag at mm, about $135,000. That's the amount Oregon bakers Aaron and Melissa Klein were ordered to pay for politely declining to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding. Well, the Klein's attorney, Stephanie Taub, joins me with breaking news on their now seven-year legal battle. She serves as one of First Liberty's Institute senior counsels. Stephanie, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you so much for having me on to talk about this important case. Yes, it's uh, the Kleins are good friends of ours, and we've talked to them many times, but it's been a while. So we'll give our viewers and listeners a quick refresher on Aaron and Melissa Klein's story. Yeah, so the whole story started 10 years ago in 2012, if you can believe it's been that long. Um, So it started when they were approached um, and asked to bake a custom wedding cake in celebration of a same-sex wedding which is something that they could not do consistent with their Christian convictions. And the uh, the Oregon Bureau of Labor and Industries fined them $135,000 for declining to bake that cake. And so today we have the latest update in this case that's been going on for 10 years. And it's um, some potentially some good news. So tell our listeners about it. Yeah, so the Oregon Court of Appeals found that the state agency that was responsible for bringing the case, for prosecuting it, and for judging the case acted in a biased way against the client's religious beliefs, that they were not acting with the neutrality that was required under the Constitution. So it, we, we were arguing that there was an anti-Christian bias that really infected the entire proceedings below. And we're, it's a good thing that the court has recognized that there 
was this bias, that the proceedings below were not fair. Um, but the court did send it back down to the very same agency that they held was biased against them in the first place. So we are determined to appeal this case to the Oregon Supreme Court or the United States Supreme Court if necessary. So, I mean, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. They're going to send it back to an agency that was that showed hostility to begin with. We saw it throughout, and the uh, the head of the agency repeatedly made statements that made it clear that that was the case. So, I mean, are you anticipating a different outcome as they rehear this? Uh, well, we're going to we're going to fight. We believe that under Supreme Court precedent, under the masterpiece cake shop decision, when the Supreme Court found that there was an anti-Christian bias against the bakery in Colorado, that was the end of the case, and that should have been the end of the case here. Everyone is entitled to a fair and a fair trial before an impartial judge, and that was right. not what happened here. And they can't just simply get a do-over. So we're going to continue to fight this case until we get justice. So Stephanie, I mean, you have to go back to that uh, Oregon agency. You can, can you, or can you appeal right now to take this to a higher court? We can appeal. We can argue that the remedy, the proper remedy should have been to dismiss the case after finding that there was this lack of neutrality that violated the constitution. And that's exactly what we intend to do. Any chance that as this lower court has stated that Oregon did not act in good faith. They discriminated against the Kleins because of their faith. Any chance that uh, the Kleins could not only recoup the fine, uh, but also the state agency be penalized for this discrimination? Well, it's entirely possible that that one hundred thirty-five thousand um, dollars could could be stricken or could could be um, could be given back. So we're we're going to fight for that, and we're going to fight so so that we'll actually get justice here. Um, because I mean, if you look at the the Supreme or the Oregon Court of Appeals opinion, one of the reasons that they pointed for for why there was actually bias here was the fact that they were awarded this this huge penalty based on the quoting of a Bible verse. Um, and so <laughs> it's just a, a bad precedent. So we're really we're glad in the sense that the court recognized that that was not a good thing to do. And that showed anti-Christian bias. But our courts are about making people whole and justice. And as you said, this has been going on for 10 years. It's driven the clients out of business. So it's not only a fine that they had to pay, but it's years of lost wages. It's the anxiety and the agony that they went through simply for practicing their faith. Someone needs to pay for that. Well, I completely agree with you. So we're going to be looking at all of our options in light of this decision that came out yesterday. And so we're we're going to keep keep up the good fight. Well, and I'm grateful that uh, Liberty Institute and others are out there fighting these fights. But I, I say take it to them and make them pay for this discrimination that, that they set out to destroy this family. And uh, it's not right. It should not happen. Yeah, if any of your viewers want more updates on the case, they can go to our website. That's firstliberty.org. All right. And we'll be tracking this carefully. And uh, we'll want to talk with you again on next steps when uh, you take them. Thank you. All right, Stephanie, thanks for joining us. And folks, I do encourage you to check out the website, First Liberty Institute. You know, we have a lot of these different groups on, well, not a lot. We have like three that we work very closely with, Liberty Council, 
uh, Alliance Defending Freedom and Liberty Institute. They're all great organizations that uh, support and defend Christians and religious freedom. And, and I'm telling you, religious freedom is in the crosshairs. People don't realize it, but it is. And we have to stand up and defend it, lest we see a repeat of this religious intolerance that swept Europe back the 1930s and 40s. And today is Holocaust Remembrance Day, and it marks a somber anniversary for many around the world. Sadly, anti-Semitism didn't disappear with the defeat of Nazis in World War II. Less than two weeks ago, our nation was shocked when a 44-year-old British national interrupted Sabbath services being streamed at a congregation in Beth Israel in Colleville, Texas. The previously flagged British national held four hostages, including the congregation's rabbi, for nearly 11 hours. Now, this was an ugly reminder that anti-Semitism is still alive and well in this day and age. In fact, in the last four years, there have been eight similar incidents take place in America. Now, in my role at the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, we've been tracking this around the world in the wake of COVID because that's been used against Jews to, to raise this, uh, this level of anti-Semitism. But here's, here's something that history also tells us, that anti-Semitism is a harbinger. It's, it's the, it's the uh, canary in the coal mine, because uh, it does not stop with the Jewish people. It moves on. Susan Michaels, director of the International Christian Embassy Jerusalem in the United States, and she joins me now to share how we can support our Jewish friends. Susan, welcome to Washington Watch. Hey, Tony, it's great to be with you again today. So tell me, Susan, what is driving this recent rash of anti-Semitism that we're seeing around the world? Well, uh, anti-Semitism is, as you say, growing around the world, and the numbers are just astounding. And, you know, you can find it in pockets East, west, uh, right, left. You can find it on college campuses. You can find it in different places. But I think the one thing that is feeding it and is uniting all of this is social media or the internet. Now, all of our fringe hate groups have been able to find each other, uh, share information, grow, and influence more and more people on the internet. So, our young people are bombarded with anti Semitic messaging because they spend so much time on the internet. And th- I think this is the one source that if we could cut that out, we would have really cut back on anti-Semitism. It, but going to the heart of it, and I just have a tendency to do that, even though sometimes it's controversial. I mean, this is spiritual. I mean, we got to see it. The, 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 the Jewish people have been the target of spiritual forces of darkness from almost the very, very beginning. And we it have to recognize, mm-hmm. we've, we've got to it recognize it. But this, spiritual. <laughs> it, it, Sorry, it, Tony, but, this, but you're just so right. <laughs> this is where Christians come in. This is where we come in because we understand the spiritual realm. We understand, as the scripture says, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. I mean, obviously, we got to have laws. We got to do things to defend against Nazism and and other uh, manifestations of this anti Semitism. But Christians should be able to discern and understand what's going on because we understand the work of the forces of darkness. 
Yes, when you look at the history of anti-Semitism that has gone on for thousands of years, and it's like an evil virus, the minute you think that you've stamped it out, it just reinvents itself and it comes back with a different face and a little bit of a different language. But at the end of the day, it's still an expression of that same hate, ancient hatred of the Jewish people. And there is no explanation for this other than a spiritual one or a biblical one. And I think uh, Psalm 83 describes it perfectly. It says, oh God, those who hate you have declared, let us wipe them off as a nation that the name of Israel be mentioned no more. And that shows it, they're caught in the middle of a spiritual warfare against God himself his choice of people, his plan to redeem the world, and they're caught in the middle of it. And we as Christians should understand that. And we as Christians are the ones that have the moral and the political strength to stand against it. And we really must. I, I feel a very uh, heavy burden. Christians must stand up against this evil. We are the ones called to do it. And the scripture makes very clear, those who bless Israel will be blessed, and, and we have a role in that. Now, this caveat, because I get criticism every time I say that, that doesn't mean that we give a blanket statement of approval for everything the nation of Israel does or the Jewish people do. I mean, we, as as we would with any friends, we we speak truth to them. But our default position is to stand with them. And if that's not enough motivation for Christians because we're commanded to do such, and I, quite frankly, I think one of the reasons America continues to sputter forward on the fumes of our forefathers is because of that blessing that has come from standing with Israel. But if you just think this growing anti-Semitism is going to stop with the Jewish people, you're mistaken. I mean, uh, you go back to the Holocaust, Martin Niemöller. I remember his famous quote that he said. He said, first they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Yes, and in the end, not only 6 million Jews died, but a total of 50 million people died at World War II. So it, you're right. We're, we, we're all at danger, and uh, we need to see them as an early warning system when a sickness is in society. And I'm so sorry to say, but we even have it in America, and I'm very concerned about it. So final question for you, uh, Susan, how can Christians in particular show support for our Jewish friends and neighbors? Well, first, educate yourself and so that you can recognize anti-Semitism and you're, you have the ability then to speak out against it and stand up. And we have developed a, a resource for Christians at icejusa.org forward slash anti-Semitism. And it's a free little booklet uh, to educate Christians on the problem of anti-Semitism and to help prepare them to speak up against it. All right, Susan, Michael, always great to talk with you. You're doing great work. Keep it up. We're praying for you and uh, happy to Thank come you. alongside and support the work you're doing. Thank you, Tony. We've appreciated your support for many years. Thank you. 
All right, folks, and I want to encourage you to do just that. Uh, check out the website and go look at the resources that uh, Susan and her team have available for you. But look, we need to be praying. And I encourage you to be praying for the peace of Jerusalem, praying for the Jewish people, and and standing up. And I, I you know, sometimes it's it's difficult when I and I've worked, gone to Israel. I've taken many times taken congressional members, um, and, and in this country we have a lot of Jews, Jewish people who are are liberal, and they don't agree with us on anything. And I and I had an interesting conversation one time. I said, you know, I don't agree with anything you this Jewish person told me. I don't agree with anything you stand for except your support for Israel. And they said, why do you support Israel? And I said, it's the same reason I support the sanctity of human life. It's the same reason I support the the sacredness of marriage, a union between one man and one woman, because it is the word of God. And so uh, we need to be standing with Israel. And as I said, as we work with uh, Israeli government leaders, when they get it wrong, we talk to them about it. We tell them we can't support that, but we support them. And uh, this rise in anti-Semitism that is taking place around the world should be concerning to every Christian, not just, for, as I said, for the fact that our Jewish friends are being targeted. That is enough. But know that it will not stop there. It will not stop. This is a canary in the coal mine with growing religious intolerance. We need to stop it now. All right, folks, thanks so much for joining us. Always great to visit with you. Check out the website, TonyPerkins.com. Until next time, I leave you with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul, found in Ephesians 6, where he says, when you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, when you've prepared, and when you've taken your stand, by all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.